Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20. We are coming to the close of David's life. David, a man after God's own heart. And we've seen so many lessons from this man who was flawed, a man who was driven after seeking what the Lord desired. But at times, because he was human, he failed. He failed greatly. In the end of his life, David met much trial and much tribulation as a result of his own sin, his sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband, Uriah. He had to reap what he sowed. Yet still, we see David with a heart of repentance, seeking the mercy of the Lord. And God honored that. God brought David back to his kingdom after he had been exiled from his own kingdom. The Lord was merciful to David, gracious to David. You see, mercy, that's when you don't get the judgment that you deserve. But grace, that's when God gives you that gift despite the fact that you don't deserve it. And David had both of those in his life. So now, towards the end of David's career as king, after he finally came back into his kingdom, after his son Absalom was killed in battle, his son Absalom, who tried to take the throne from his father, David. The Lord vanquished Absalom through the hands of Joab and his men. And David returned to his kingdom. So now after David returns to his kingdom here in chapter 20, let's begin our study. It says, And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Man, as if David didn't have enough rebels from his own family. Now more rebels are rising up against him. And sometimes it just seems like the trials, they don't stop. They just keep coming. In verse 2, so every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the 10 women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house and put them in seclusion and supported them but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Now, you remember that David, his son Absalom, when he rised up against him in rebellion and David had to flee from his own kingdom. 
Absalom then took these ten concubines that were David's, and he set up this tent on top of a palace. And in order to publicly shame his father, he had sexual relations with these women. So now as David returns after this was committed, David decided to house these women and to support them, but he never knew them anymore. And a lot of times when that word to know someone, uh, many times in the Bible, it's a euphemism. It's another way to say to have sexual relations with them. So David put them away. And in verse four, and the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. Now, remember Amasa, he was part of David's generals. And then when his son Absalom started the rebellion, Amasa actually went to Absalom's team and was Absalom's general. And then David, when he came into his kingdom after Absalom was killed, he pardoned Amasa. He said, look, Amasa, I don't have anything against you. You're of the same family as me. I'm going to let you live. But it does seem that Amasa was not loyal to David. Now in verse six, and David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So now back referring to, again, the first problem of this rebel Bichri, Sheba, the son of Bichri, he's saying, look, we got to get rid of this guy. And he would be worse to us than my own son Absalom was. And in verse eight, verse seven, so Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at its hips, at his hips, and he was going forward. It fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. That sounds pretty intense, right? In verse 10, but Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand and he struck him with it in the stomach and his entrails poured out on the ground and he did not strike him again, thus he died. Now we know Joab to be quite a lethal and brute general of David. Joab was a man of vengeance. When his brother was killed, he would go after his brother's killer and secretly bring him aside and then stab him. And now Joab here, because Joab does have a loyalty to David, has this vendetta against Amasa because Amasa betrayed David and went to Absalom's rebellion. 
but Joab didn't forget. Now, Joab, it's not commendable the way he's acting, but you do see that he does have this intense loyalty to David. And now David had pardoned Amasa, but Joab, without regard to David's pardon towards Amasa, takes him aside and strikes him in the stomach so that his guts pour out. The Bible gets so graphic sometimes, doesn't it? Where you're reading this account and realizing that they didn't sugarcoat the truth. They simply stated the historical facts of what was happening in this time. Look at the end of verse 10. It says, Then Joab and Abishai his brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Verse 11, Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. When he saw that everyone who came upon him halted, When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. Quite a violent account, I have to say. Sometimes you might think that you've heard people say, oh, the Bible's boring. Why do you you read the Bible? It's boring. No, this is not boring. This is straight out of a movie almost. Now in verse 15, then they came and besieged him and Abel of Beth Micah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So imagine now this siege of all these men coming against this city and battering this wall. This is like a scene now from Lord of the Rings. Joab, this brute, is on the charge now. It says in verse 16, Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Here, here, please say to Joab, Come nearby that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk. In former times, saying they surely seek guidance at Abel, and so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? So now this woman in her wisdom understands that Joab and his men, his army, They're coming after this one rebel. So here she is pleading with Joab and his soldiers and saying, why are you going to kill this whole city? And she's very wise to do so. She's basically going to offer, just just take the guy and deal with him and leave us in peace. Now, Joab's response here in verse 20. And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me, 
that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. So what I see in this story, I'm not commending Joab and his violence. I'm not commending uh, the intense vengeance that Joab had. It was right for this rebel to be stopped, yes. But what I do see is that in God's sovereignty, God is dealing with the enemies of his servant David. And many times he uses men who are not even Christian, are not even full of the Spirit. He uses sometimes enemies to get his work to be completed. Satan himself is used as an instrument to test the hearts of man. And God in his sovereignty allows for these things to happen. See, the way it is, it's as if Satan sometimes tries to throw a a punch at the Christian believer. And then God sovereignly moves the believer so that the punch ends up going around and he hits himself in the face sometimes. That's how God works. If Satan thinks that he is attacking and doing evil, but in the big picture, God is victorious and God is going to protect his children here in this life and also into eternity. God uses trials. God uses burdens, pestilence to allow his will to be complete. So we have to trust that God knows what he's doing in all of this. Now in verse 23, And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, was over Adoram, was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilad was a recorder, and Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests, and Ira, the Jairite, was a chief minister unto David. Now at this point in 2 Samuel, the author of 2 Samuel takes a step back from a chronological account and begins to tell details of David's life not necessarily in chronological order, but what he wants to emphasize in important parts of David's life. So certain things happen actually going forward before it takes place as we read it. 
So that being said, I do want to turn to chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. As we take a look at David's great fall again. This is a different one, though. This is not his sin with Bathsheba. This is David as he is now tempted by the ruler of this world, Satan himself. And he's tempted with the sin of pride. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. It says, Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Now, here again, we see another example of the Lord allowing David to be used as a chastening for the nation of Israel because their hearts had left the one true God. You see, man still has free will. And God and his sovereignty knows that David's going to make a mistake again. And he says, you know what? I'm going to allow for this to happen so that my children in Israel can wake up, can realize that they're doing wrong. And because I'm a loving father, I'm going to chasten them and draw them back into my loving arms. It says in verse 2, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, And may the eyes of my Lord, the king, see it. But why does my Lord, the king, desire this thing? You see, Joab knew that by David numbering the people without any type of offering, as was commanded in the Old Testament, that David had been lifted up with pride, that David wanted to count the people in order so he could see how great of a king he had been. There was a commandment for David, for the kings, that they were to have this offering before they were to make any type of census. But David didn't follow this. And Joab was warning him here. Sometimes there's wisdom that comes from the Lord, even through people who are not fully in Christ. Remember, Ahithophel, the Bible teaches us that his words were like an oracle of God, and Ahithophel became an enemy to David and to the Lord. But there was still this wisdom that people had. So the key now to wonder about when do you apply that wisdom is personal relationship with the Lord. You have to be so in tune with the Spirit that you're able to filter out what is of the Lord and what isn't. And that personal relationship comes from reading the Bible daily, praying daily, 
being in fellowship. Here again, David has left that fine-tuning of being sensitive to the Spirit. In verse 4, it says, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Eroer on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim. Hachi, they came to Danjain and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to the south Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone throughout all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. So here they went through all the territories that they listed to have the census complete. And Joab, despite knowing what was commanded of the Lord, he obeyed David. It says in verse 9, Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So the census was complete, and Joab, he didn't heed the commandment of God, but he heeded the commandment of David, who was, at this point, transgressing against the Lord. Look at verse 10. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. See, David realizes his sin again of numbering the people and he seeks repentance. And in verse 11, now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. So here David again is being visited by the prophet, this time the prophet Gad. He comes to David and knows that David again has messed up. And this time, Gad, the prophet, tells David, look, David, God's given you now three choices. 
three punishments, and he's going to let you pick which punishment that's going to be upon you. The first was this, this famine in the land. Three days plague in the land or to be chased by his own enemies while they pursued him. So now David has a choice to make. And then verse 14, And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So this is what David chose. He said, look, you know what? I don't want to be chased by the enemies. I don't want to have a famine, but let God allow his plague to come upon us. Perhaps God will be merciful. It says in verse 15, so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. Man, I am reminded of COVID-19 right here. I just can't help but think about it. How there are times when the Lord will allow a plague to chasten his people. Are we going to repent? Are there's, Are we going to learn the lessons that God is trying to teach us in this time? It says in verse 16, And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. In the Bible, we do often see God will relent from his chastening if we will but get on our knees and pray and ask. Ask for mercy. Now it says in verse 18, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has the Lord, the king, come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. 
So David now here, as commanded by the prophet, he goes to this man who has these oxen, this, this farmer, a threshing floor. And he is commanded to build this altar to have sacrifice, to give it unto the Lord so that the Lord would have mercy upon the nation Israel. It says now in verse 23, all these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Now, David, when he first sinned with Bathsheba and killing Uriah, that sin affected his family. Many were murdered because of it. Violence came upon his house. But this time when David sinned, thousands upon thousands of people were killed by this plague. The impact was much greater, much more severe. So David, because of this, when Aruna offered him, here, look, take my oxen and sacrifice unto the Lord, David said, no, I'm not going to just take it. I'm going to buy it from you because I've sinned and it needs to cost me something. See, our sacrifices unto the Lord, if they don't cost us anything, is it really sacrifice? We need to make sure that our service unto the Lord is genuine, pure in motive. Do we have those scars from ministry that are showing the world that we've sacrificed, that we have died to ourselves so that God can be glorified and not ourselves? David here, tempted by Satan, counted the people. The Bible talks about Satan being a ruler of this world. And one day that ruler is going to be knocked down, put in the lake of fire, and Jesus will be the ruler of all. But in John chapter 12, verse 31, you don't need to turn there. Speaking of Satan, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, referring to Satan. Again, in John's gospel, he writes in chapter 14, verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Jesus, again, referring to Satan as the ruler. As 
the prince of darkness of this world, Satan, his target as the ruler is our will. So Satan as the ruler, his target to attack is our will. Do you remember Satan's five I wills in Isaiah chapter 14? In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, Satan is spoken about. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. You see, Satan's first sin, the five I wills of Satan, was that very thing going against the will of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, we are to submit our wills to the Lord. It says this in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You see, you can't just love the Lord with just your mind because then your life will not change. And you can't love the Lord with just your heart and your emotions because your emotions will deceive you. God wants the will of both our heart, our emotions, and our mind. And he wants us to be submitted to him. Now again, Satan as the ruler, because he's targeting our will, what does he use as a weapon? He uses pride. Satan uses pride as a weapon to attack our will. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 and 19 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. You see, if the enemy can't take us down from his outside attacks, he's going to try to take us down from within. You see, the enemy was trying to attack David through his son Absalom. And when that didn't work, he attacked him from the inside out. He attacked him with pride. And we know that this was Satan attacking him. Perhaps when you saw, as we read that chapter, that it said that, that God had used David to chasten Israel. We get more insight in the Bible on this account. And that's taken from 1 Chronicles chapter 21. The first three verses of 1 Chronicles 21 says this, Now Satan stood up against Israel 
and moved David to number Israel. See, it's Satan now who's trying to tempt Israel. It says in verse two, so David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab tried to persuade David not to do this. And again, in first Chronicles 21 verses 14 and 15, it says, so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Again, remember David, when he numbered the people, he did it for his own glory. There was no redemption offering as commanded in Exodus chapter 30. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul warns us not to put a new believer into such a, a big role of leadership because Satan attacks them with pride. It says, lest being fill, puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. 1 Timothy 3.6. So Satan, because he's using his weapon of pride, his purpose in using that is to make us independent of God's will. So this is exactly what Satan wants. His purpose as the ruler of this world is to make us independent of God's will. The whole thesis of, of, of Satan is he just wants you to do what you want to do. As long as it's what you want to do, he says, look, you don't even need to do what I want to do. Just do what you want to do and don't do what God wants you to do. Because by doing so, you're actually going against the Lord. Remember Jesus in John chapter 15. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Again, in John 15 verse five, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me, you can do nothing. You see, without God, our will is nothing. We can do nothing without him when we're full of the Holy Spirit. So what is our, our defense now against the ruler of this world and against pride? Our defense is the indwelling spirit of God. The Holy Spirit living in us is our defense against the ruler and pride. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, this is why we're created. This is our purpose in life. It's for God's pleasure. 
for God to get the glory, for God to be pleased with us. And when we don't do that, when we do our own will, we end up unfulfilled, without peace, anxious, because we're not doing what we're intended to be, what we were created to do, which is to please the Lord. Again, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, it reads, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So how do we not do those things that our flesh desires in us? Walk in the spirit. Not in the flesh, but walk in the spirit. Meaning that when we are given choices in life, that we say that prayer, okay, Holy Spirit, what what do you want me to do in this situation? Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I wait? And just walk. In Ephesians 8, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So this is what I love about the Holy Spirit living in us. It's something that God does for us. In Christianity, there's three S's that are super important for us. That first S, it's salvation. That's a work that God does for us. He saves us from hell, from our own sins. The second S is sanctification. And that's a work that God does in us where he removes the sin from our life daily, every day. His Holy Spirit does that work of cleansing us from within. And the third S is going to be service. And that's a work that God does through us, where he, by his Holy Spirit, anoints us, fills us, so that we have that upon experience where God is using us and flowing into others. And remember that we can rely on God for all of these actions. You see, our salvation, it's dependent upon God. Our sanctification, also dependent upon God. And our service, if it's God doing the work through us, then it's also dependent upon God. And we could rely on him to just allow his Holy Spirit to move through us when we simply have that relationship with him, simply abide in him. In Jude 1.1, it says, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. That word for preserve, it's to be kept in Jesus Christ. We need to surrender our will to God. In James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So simply submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil is going to flee. Again, James 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And lastly, 
a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this, sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ more boldly still. Take courage and confess your sin. Do not try to run away from it, but believe more boldly still. You are a sinner, so be a sinner and don't try to become what you are not. He can never become sinless who in his fear despairs from the grace of God. You see, what Martin Luther is trying to say, he's not saying, look, just go ahead and sin. He's saying, realize that we're all sinners, that we need God's grace to be bold in the idea, in the truth that God's grace is for us sinners, that we need it every day. And then we can allow that eternal perspective to be our viewpoint where we don't think of ourselves more lowly than we should, but we don't think of ourselves at all. And we think of the Lord and his people and what he desires us to do. So this is our defense against pride, against the ruler of this world, is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, that you are gracious, merciful, that you love us no matter how many times we mess up. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would remove pride from our life. May we be humble, Lord, before you. Father, may you Relent, Father, from chastening. Father, I pray and I ask, Lord, that if there's anyone listening, Father, who just needs that touch of your Holy Spirit to repent, to grow and mature in their Christian walk, would you have your Holy Spirit fill them so mightily, Lord God, that they would submit their own will to your will. May we as believers seek after your heart. As David was a man after God's own heart, may we be men and women after your heart. Father, continue to bless this ministry. Continue to bless this church. Add to us as you seem fit. May we be patient and living according to your will. We love you, Father. We thank you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, this uh, Sunday we're going to be meeting at 1030 in my backyard. So we hope to see you there. But we love you. We're praying for you. Be filled with His Spirit. Use the name of Jesus in conversation this week. Tell your friends of the love that he has. Let's let's end with this last song of worship.